millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the history of Byzantium, episode 8 Italy and Africa. Before we begin, I have several housekeeping items to get out of the way. First off, let me say a big thank you to all of you for the feedback on the length of the podcasts. There were a variety of opinions, but the majority seemed to like the 25 to 30 minute length and preferably closer to 30. That's what I'll keep aiming for going forwards with all the previously explained caveats for when I can't manage it. Second, when I began the podcast, one of my fears was that every week I would be inundated with messages correcting me on all kinds of factual inaccuracies. Mike always dealt with his corrections in a dignified manner, and I hope to do the same. Listener Mark points out that King Clovis of the Franks married Clotilda, and not Clotilde, as I pronounced it. Pronunciation is going to really start tripping me up as the Byzantines get more Greek, so I'm grateful to anyone who can help me out. And if any of you know of a handy website for Greek names and words, that would be very, very helpful. Finally, we need to start using maps. I should have had one ready for you during the last episode, but better late than never. If you look now at the history of Byzantium, wordpress.com under the post for this episode you can click on the handy map of europe in the year 500 huge thanks to thomas lessman and his website worldhistorymaps.info the map actually covers the whole world so you will need to zoom in on europe once you do though it's all worth it as we have details of all the major neighbors of the byzantines so this map will stay relevant for the next couple of podcasts as we move east. The only downside is that it's a political snapshot from the year 500 specifically, so the Frankish takeover of the Alamanni and southern France hasn't happened yet. I'll point out any other changes as we move up to 518, but in general this is a really helpful map. If you're away from your computer while listening to this, I definitely recommend you make a mental note to go check it out the next time you can. I will also be trying to find more specific maps for particular regions as we go forward. However, I feel confident that you all know where France, Spain and Italy are, so let's get going. Last time, we saw the growth of Frankish power in France 
and the movement of the Visigoths to Spain. We also caught a glimpse of how the ex-Romans were dealing with this transition and the situation of Christianity in the new societies. This episode will be more of the same as we move into the two kingdoms a little closer to Constantinople. We start in Italy, the home province of the Roman Empire. As the dwindling regiments of the imperial army were losing control of Britain, France, Spain, Austria, Switzerland, they never lost control of Italy. You may recall that during the last few episodes of the history of Rome, the man who dominated the military from the 450s to the 470s was a Germanic general named Ricimer. Ricimer controlled what remained of the imperial army and, based in Ravenna, continued to hold Italy for the empire until his death in 472. As you know, after that, a series of emperors rose and fell before Odoacer put an end to the charade in 476. What Odoacer was saying in political terms was that he had an army under his control and he was more than happy to continue defending Italy as long as his men were paid. There was no need for an emperor to rule Italy anymore. That only led to more infighting. Why not let Odoacer rule and be done with it? As you know from episode 2 of the History of Byzantium, Zeno agreed with this logic. He didn't have much of a choice, as the Byzantines couldn't effectively influence events in Italy anymore, but Odoacer was aware that that might not always be the case. So he simply asked for the title of patrician and began to govern Italy nominally on behalf of the emperor. Unlike in Gaul or Spain then, Italy's daily life continued to function very much as if it were part of the empire. The senate still met, consuls were still appointed, taxes were still collected, and coins were still minted with the emperor's face on them. We'll get more into this situation in a moment, but I should also point out that Odoacer didn't stop at Italy. As we saw in episode 3, when Julius Nepos was murdered in 480, Odoacer's men just happened to be at the ready to sweep in and annex the province of Dalmatia to be part of their Italian holdings. To go with the modern Croatia, there were also parts of modern Austria and Slovenia under Odoacer's control. These territories had always been part of the Western Empire, and so Odoacer's military activity was officially approved by Constantinople, even if it was privately frowned upon. As I said, Odoacer was all too aware that the Byzantines might one day be strong enough to take back what they had given. The Byzantines, for their part, knew their own weaknesses. If their armies were off fighting the Persians, they were far from confident that they could stop Odoacer from raiding the Balkans. This cautious peace continued under Theodoric when he led his Ostrogoths into Italy in 488, something I'm sure you also remember from episode 3. Theodoric's Goths absorbed, replaced or killed the Germans who had served under Odoacer and began to settle down in Italy. We are told that the Goths took one third of the Roman estates to be their new land. It's not clear whether this means one third of all land or one third of the public land, but suffice it to say that the Goths were moving in down the street and if they told you that they now owned your backyard, you'd best not kick up a fuss about it. 
Theodoric was sensitive to the situation, though. He knew that for his kingdom to last, he needed the cooperation of the Italians. So instead of just looking at a map and drawing lines all over it, he set up a commission to make a fair distribution, and at the head of the commission would be an Italian. The man he chose was a senator called Liberius, who we will deal with again down the road. He had worked under Odoacer as a high official, and was Theodoric's first Praetorian prefect. And as head of the land commission, he doubtless looked after his senatorial friend's interests and made sure that their favourite koi pond was not on the list. With his army settling into their new homes, Theodoric got down to the business of government. He followed the precedent set by Odoacer and ruled with day-to-day practical independence while maintaining the self-imposed limitations which would keep the Byzantines happy. As mentioned before, coins minted in Italy would have the face of Zeno or Anastasius on one side, and not Theodoric's. Similarly, official documents continued to be dated to the reigns of the emperors. Even more significantly, Theodoric couldn't enact laws. The right to make a new law remained the prerogative of the emperor. Of course, Theodoric still made judgments on cases brought to him, and in practice, if you had a major legal dispute that couldn't be settled locally, you would appeal to Theodoric, and not to Anastasius. However, Theodoric was keen to not change the spirit of the laws, which the Roman people had been living under for centuries. He worked hard to let his Italian subjects know that he would respect their way of doing things. As I also mentioned, consuls were still elected every year, with Theodoric allowed to choose one, and Anastasius the other. The important restriction here was that only a Roman could be a consul. The major civil offices were also Roman-only appointments. The Praetorian Prefect of Italy, the Provincial Governors, the Master of Offices, and the Finance Ministries were all staffed by native Italians, taking orders from their Gothic overlords. The Senate still met in Rome, and continued to perform the same functions it had for the last couple of centuries. Of course, the reverse of this was true when it came to the military. Only Goths could serve in the army, which meant only Goths could be officers, and therefore wield the true power behind the regime. The Goths and Romans were both subject to some of the same laws, but not all. If someone stole a loaf of bread, then they would be punished regardless of their ethnicity. But if a squabble ensued over marriage or inheritance, Romans and Goths would be dealt with under their own traditions. This was a key distinction which prevented the blending of Roman and Goth into a new nation. Legally, in fact, this was impossible. Theodoric could not grant citizenship. Again, that power was reserved for the emperor. So the Goths existed in Italy, much as Federate troops had done for the previous 200 years. The Goths' Aryan Christian beliefs were another stumbling block to integration. Italians and Goths went to separate churches on a Sunday, pursued different careers on a Monday, and dealt with their own kind in court on a Tuesday. Despite the clear distinction between rulers and ruled, Theodoric was a popular man amongst his Italian subjects. 
He upheld their rights and traditions, and many realized that they had a greater autonomy and a lighter tax load than they might have under the empire. Theodoric was called king, a title which acknowledged his special status as ruler of Italy, while also expressing that he was himself still a subject of the emperor. Theodoric wasn't going to rely on this title, or the title of patrician that he'd officially been given, to protect him from a reviving Byzantine state. Zeno had tried to tie him in knots many times, and having spent his youth in Constantinople, I'm sure he'd heard many a Byzantine talk about what a shame it was that Italy was currently being ruled by barbarians. So Theodoric looked around for allies, and attempted to secure good relations with the other Germanic kingdoms. He married off his two daughters to the Visigothic and Burgundian kings, he married King Clovis's sister himself, and married his sister to the king of the Vandals. Despite the impressive family tree he had drawn up, though, he could not prevent war between his neighbours, or the need for action on his part. As you know, war came between the Franks and the Visigoths in 507. As hostilities grew hotter, Theodoric dashed off a series of impassioned letters trying to stop the war, while also gathering his army and marching west. He was too late, though, and the decisive Battle of Voye saw the Franks emerge victorious. Theodoric, however, marched across the southern coast of Gaul and made it clear to the Burgundians and the Franks that the area was to remain in Gothic hands. As I said in the last episode, Theodoric now became regent for the child king Amalaric and technically ruled Italy and Spain from 511 until his death in 526. We don't have a lot of records to indicate how involved Theodoric was in the day-to-day governance of Spain, I assume a lot of the work fell on the local Visigoths. The fact that no one came forward to take over, though, gives us an indication of the esteem that Theodoric was held in. We don't know him as the Great for nothing. Despite the popularity of Theodoric, though, it's no stretch to assume that many Italians resented their foreign overlords. Their rule in Italy would still have felt like an occupation to many, especially those who were forced to hand their land over. An edict of 512 attempts to put a stop to violence between Romans and Goths over land ownership, which suggests that peaceful coexistence was far from universal. And of course, many Italians who had either fled or been exiled made their way to Constantinople where they agitated for action against the Goths and kept up a correspondence with their friends back home. As you can imagine, this situation led to tension amongst the Italian elite. They were still citizens of the empire, but their daily lives were subject to a Gothic king. Some yearned for a return to the old days, while others enjoyed the independence that came with looser Gothic supervision. The starkest expression of this tension was caused by that ever-fun group of people, the Monophysites. I mentioned a while back that there were very few Monophysites in the West. The authority of the Pope and of Orthodox belief was not seriously challenged in Italy. Of course, what did affect the Italians were the various compromises that the emperors began to make to try and appease their Eastern subjects. 
when the Henoticon was issued, there was debate in Rome amongst the senators and those with influence over whether the Pope should sign up to it or not. The Orthodox hardcore were against any compromise, while those of a more moderate persuasion could see the spirit in which Zeno and Acacius had intended it. The sitting Pope died in 498, before a decision had been reached, and two Popes were elected, one each representing the conflicting viewpoints on the Henoticon. There was partisan support for each, and violent incidents took place on the streets of Rome. The tide switched in favour of the Orthodox Pope after an incident near the city of Sirmium, on the border in Pannonia, between imperial-controlled territory and the Kingdom of Italy. On your map, this would be the northernmost tip of where the border meets, right under the land where the Gepids live. The Gepids were another German tribe who had occupied the city since the breakup of Attila's empire in the 450s. Theodoric campaigned against them and forced them away from the lands that had once formed the prefecture of Italy. This led to a clash with imperial troops that we know only a little about. The sources imply that Anastasius would actually have preferred to keep the Gepids in place in Sirmium, presumably as a buffer against any growth in Gothic power. There was a Hunnic warlord named Mundo loose in the empire at this time, and it's not clear why, but around 504 or 505, imperial troops in search of Mundo ended up on the wrong ends of Ostrogothic swords. The defeat was a humiliation for the empire, and it's not clear who was in the wrong. In response, the Byzantine navy was let loose, and they ravaged the coast of Calabria and Apulia, and assaulted the city of Tarentum. This wasn't exactly revenge on the Goths. Many of those who suffered or lost property were Italians, nominally subjects of a Roman emperor. The incident did no lasting damage to the overall peace, and Anastasius accepted Theodoric's restoration of the Italian prefecture. However, opinion back in Rome swung behind Theodoric. The party supporting the pro-Henoticon Pope had been doing so in part because they felt Italian interests should be linked with those of the empire and wanted to show solidarity with imperial policy. Now, though, with Byzantine troops attacking Theodoric's men, who after all had just risked their lives to drive out the Gepids, well, public opinion switched behind Pope Symmachus, who became sole pontiff and refused to ratify the Henoticon. Theodoric oversaw a generally prosperous time in Italy. If you informed an Italian peasant or senator that they were now living in the Dark Ages, they would have been most surprised. Life for them hadn't changed too drastically from a century before, when an emperor lived amongst them. Theodoric made no effort for Goths to be educated as Romans or to learn Latin as their first language. The quote attributed to him is that no child who trembled before the rod of a teacher will ever dare look at a sword. An attitude entirely understandable from the Gothic point of view in a country where Italians no longer fought in their own army. Although the population of Rome was much shrunken now since the seizure of Carthage by the Vandals, it had not lost its rank as the premier city on the peninsula. Theodoric kept grain coming into the city from Sicily, 
and entertainments continued under the excitable auspices of the Blues and the Greens. In fact, in the year 500, Theodoric himself visited the Eternal City, assuring the Senate and people of the just and legal government he planned to oversee. He spent six months there, paying for needed repairs and impressing the Romans with his approachable administration and his outspoken admiration for the amazing monuments and engineering of the old capital. He even lived in the imperial palace on the Palatine and oversaw games in the Circus Maximus from the imperial box. Ah, remember the good old days? We now turn to Africa by which, of course, I mean modern Tunisia and parts of Algeria. The Vandals had crossed to Spain from Africa in 429 under King Genseric. They had proceeded to move slowly east until they captured Carthage and the province surrounding it. They then took control of the imperial fleet, sacked Rome, and took possession of Sardinia, Corsica, the Balearics, and, again, as you can see on the map, a toehold in Sicily. They eventually gave that last part of their empire up when Theodoric told them that he thought that would be best. The loss of Africa was one of the major death blows dealt to the Western Roman Empire. Africa was a secure and prosperous place during the crisis years of the 3rd and 4th centuries. African grain kept the city of Rome fed, and African taxes helped pay for the armies needed to defend the Rhine and Danube frontiers. Its capture meant that suddenly the imperial government in Ravenna no longer had the cash to pay for the soldiers to retake their lost provinces. Another key problem in losing Africa was losing control of the sea. For centuries the Romans had called the Mediterranean our sea. The control over access to the coast allowed for the safe movement of grain, goods and soldiers to maintain the empire. The importance of Africa to the empire was amply demonstrated by Leo's massively expensive invasion of 468, the failure of which left the Eastern Empire unable to act as the rest of the West fell away. After this failure, Genseric continued the naval attacks on Greece that had provoked Leo in the first place. Zeno was forced to make peace with the Vandals, and the price was to recognise their right to rule the territories that they had seized. Where the Vandals were less successful was closer to home. In order to maintain control in North Africa, the Romans had had to cultivate relations with the various Berber tribes who lived inside and outside of their territory. Many had become semi-Romanized and others had been converted to Christianity. However, many other tribes were far from wedded to the imperial system, and with the invasion by the Vandals, they saw a chance to throw off the yoke and enjoy some independence. If you take a look at your map, you can see several of these minor kingdoms emerging and the remnant of Roman-controlled Mauritania, which will soon slip out of the control of local Roman provincials. The Vandals were to lose several battles against their nomad neighbours and soon decided that defending what they had taken, rather than expanding it, was the best policy. A number of things mark the Vandals out as different from the Goths or the Franks as a ruling people. Their relationship with the Empire, for example, was quite different. 
the Goths and Franks had long histories of fighting with the Romans, against the Romans, making treaties with them, and living amongst them. The Goths in particular, both Ostro and Visi, had slowly become a fixture within the societies they now ruled, and so had learned to some extent to tread carefully. The Vandals had had a very different experience. They had never been Roman Federate troops. They only knew conflict with the Empire. They had invaded and pillaged through Gaul and Spain before seizing Africa and the major islands of the Mediterranean. Their understanding of how to deal with the Romans was to use force. Once they took control of Africa, they destroyed the walls of all the cities they had taken to prevent the Roman population from revolting. Carthage was the lone exception. The Vandals then quickly gobbled up fine estates for themselves, and here the particular conditions in Africa allowed them to bypass the need for committees like the one Theodoric had to set up. Many of the large African estates were actually owned by Italians, who were, of course, not around to be dispossessed. The Vandals also seized Catholic church wealth and either destroyed or converted many buildings to the Aryan Rite. And it was in this area of religion where the Vandals stood most distinctly apart from their neighbours. Like the Goths, the Vandals felt that their Aryan beliefs marked them out as a ruling caste. However, unlike the Goths, they saw no need to curry favour with their Catholic subjects. After seizing their churches, Genseric refused to allow a new Bishop of Africa to be appointed, though officially he agreed to tolerate the existence of Catholic worship. Under his son and successor, Huneric, this began to change. In 484, Huneric issued a decree against the Catholic heresy of the Roman people. It was time for the Catholics to feel some persecution. Huneric adapted a law that the Emperor Honorius had enacted against the Donatists 70 years earlier. The decree allowed for a meeting where the king would decide what was orthodox and what was heretical. Once his judgment was passed, heresy would be illegal and punishable. In the wording of his decree, Huneric points out that he is enforcing a law which the Romans created. Come on, guys. I'm upholding your traditions. It's hardly my fault that you're now the ones who hold heretical beliefs. There is, of course, no little irony in the Roman insistence on one form of Christianity being used against them. In a strange way, then, the Vandals were being far more Roman than the Goths were. The persecutions were no Spanish Inquisition, though, and Huneric died shortly afterwards, leaving his successor, Gunthamund, to quietly ignore the issue. His successor, Thrasamund, picked it up again, though, deporting Catholic bishops to Sardinia and generally making life hard for the Roman Africans. A steady stream of anti-Vandal Catholics made their way to Constantinople, and under diplomatic pressure from Anastasius, Thrasimund tempered the persecution, leaving the Catholics to worship, very quietly, in peace. This brings us up to date on what's been going on in the former Roman provinces since 476. It's only been 43 years in our story since the Western Empire was dispensed with, 
And so it's only natural that many in the West might still feel that the empire could make a comeback. This feeling was strongest in Italy and Africa, as we've seen. Both politically and geographically, the empire was an important factor in their lives. As we shall see, this situation was not lost on Justinian, a man who, once he becomes emperor, will attempt to take back what was lost. In two weeks' time, we will move east. We need to get a better understanding of the neighbours of the empire to the north and the east, and we will also need to begin to look at the provinces of the Byzantine Empire to get a better handle on ancient geography and see how life has changed in the last century or so. Thanks again to all of you for listening and for your comments on Facebook, in iTunes, and at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 